Hello and welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Susan Bysowitz is looking to make New Haven and Connecticut tick. She's running for the Democratic nomination for Attorney General, and she's here in the WNHH studio to tell us all about that. Welcome, Susan Bysowitz, and thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Small correction, I'm exploring for governor. There's a lot of AG candidates out there. Did I say AG? You did. Oh, That's my okay. goodness. I'm sorry That's about okay. that. That's okay. That's okay. I was carrying it over from Chris Maddie. He was there the other day. I did cut and paste. With my... <laughs> we have, well, there are so many AG candidates. There are so many governor candidates. Oh, my goodness. But you are running for governor. I am and exploring this is not the... for governor. Yes. Exploring. exploring. Exploring means what? That it's not technically. So um, there are different requirements under our campaign finance rules. So that's why um, I got to be really careful. And at what point do you say this is an official campaign? So at some point before our state convention, which is May 19th. Okay. Yeah. So um, Susan Bysitz, we're going to talk today about why you're interested in the governor's race, what, where you stand on some of the issues today, what you've been up to, because we, you're one of the few in the race who are well-known statewide. You were the secretary mm-hmm. of the state for 12 years. I was. It was a great job. And, um, um, I was the chief business registrar and also the chief elections Mm-hmm. official for the state. We'll talk about that. I remember right. I even covered you somewhat during that time yes, and you, you gave did. me some of the early lessons about the role of women in politics, which is now a very big issue. Absolutely. But I want to start out by reading you a quote. Okay. I want you to tell me if you can guess where the quote came from and why I'm asking you. Ready? Sure. Here's the quote. I keep my campaign promises, but I never promise to wear stockings. Oh, that's Ella Grasso. That's right. The former governor, the first female governor in Connecticut and the first elected gov- female the governor in the country. The first female governor elected in her own right in the entire country. And she was elected in 1974 uh, in Connecticut. And at the time, she made history because although there had been several women governors like Lurleen B. Wallace in Alabama and Ma Ferguson in Texas. Both of those women had followed their husband mm. in office. And Lurleen Wallace um, ran uh, right after her husband uh, was term limited. Uh, George was term limited, and there were people who actually thought George was still the governor uh, when she got elected. So Ella Grasso was unique and special because she was elected in her own right. Any uh, hunch where I got that quote? Um, I think you found that in my book because it was something that she said, which I loved. And uh, that's why I remember it. Most of what I know about Ella Grasso, I learned in a book that you wrote Mm -hmm. called Ella, a biography of Governor Ella Grasso. Which I, and that book started as a senior paper that I wrote when I was at Yale. Class 83. Class 83. You didn't know my wife, but you were the same class. And and so what's interesting to me about that and that quote is you've actually studied for a long time Mm -hmm. what happened when Connecticut elected a women governor, what she did right, what she did wrong, how the country affected, how the state reacted to her, and what it took to govern. So this interested you. And I would say that her experience is relevant today because when she took office that she was 
um, dealing with a deficit that was huge at the time. It was $500 million. She came into office after her Republican predecessor, um, Governor Meskel, and she right away right, she's had a to Democrat, yeah. deal with a very big uh, deficit. Um, and sh- I believe she was able to do it effectively because she understood what families were going through in Connecticut. She was the daughter of immigrants. She grew up in a very uh, ethnic, blue-collar, working-class town of of Windsor Locks. Um, And she was also very well-educated. She went to Choate. uh, She went to Mount Holyoke. um, But she was somebody who related to all types of people in Connecticut. Uh, And she had... Um, not only the financial expertise from being an economics um, graduate student and from running the secretary of the state's office, um, but she also had compassion for people. And, and Susan, I'm going to ask if you don't mind, if you mm-hmm. could turn the mic a little bit towards you and get a little closer to it. So there we sure. go, because we want people to be able to hear me. Yeah, if you can get a little closer, if you could go a little closer, Mike, when you're talking to you. Okay. So Ella Grassa grew up, was, was uh, the daughter of immigrants. She grew she up was. in a blue collar area. She had financial background in politics. She served as Secretary of State. Were you just giving me the bio of Susan Bysowitz as, Elza, as well as Ella Grassa? <laughs> well, I would be the granddaughter okay, of so big immigrants. <laughs> Polish American. Polish and Greek. My mom's relatives were Greek and my mom actually knew Ella Grasso. Uh, my mom grew up in Enfield. Um, and I grew up on a farm, a potato farm in Middletown. Okay. So I didn't know Middletown had potato farms. Uh, my dad still lives on our beautiful farm. Do they uh, still grow potatoes? Um, yes, but not in such great quantity because my dad, uh, God bless, is is 96. He just turned 96. He's a World War II veteran. And am I right to assume that Middletown had a lot more farming than it does now? It did. It did. It still has some farms. Well, you never think of them. You think of Middletown, which many is a fewer. city. So the farms are um, around the outskirts of Middletown. So in the Westfield section, and there's even a section of Middletown called South Farms, mm-hmm. where there are some still some farms. So Susan Barnes, what's obviously the reason I'm asking you about the book you wrote on Allegresso, about Allegresso being governor, is that you've had your eye for a long time, if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me if I am, on becoming a female governor of Connecticut in the mold of Ella Grasso. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I think that there are some similarities between me and Ella Grasso. Um, and uh, yes, I've thought about uh, running for governor. And uh, I think this is an important and critical moment for our state because families uh, need help. Our state's economy needs help. And where our state has maxed out on its credit cards and now no one wants to pay the bill. So we've got a lot of work to do. So you began talking when I first brought up the book about how she dealt with the fiscal crisis, how her background um, mm-hmm. helped to prepare for it. When I read the book, I noticed that you were, you seem to be both inspired by her. And by the way, Alicia Martindale writes in, yay, Susan. Thanks for listening, Alicia Martindale. Oh, hey, Alicia. Um, you wrote that, um, that I, I, there was some criticism of Ella in the book, you know, not personal, but just right. saying that things you felt. I seem to feel between the lines you were critical of her for not embracing an income tax at the time. Uh, Is yes, that incorrect? Uh, that's, there are some issues But separate where from the I income tax differ. issue on the merits, I feel you were saying that, that she didn't always get ahead of the voters, that she didn't use her political capital to sometimes maybe take a gutsier stand 
on an issue to lead. Is that a fair she, thing to say? She was, she was a more conservative leader, and uh, I believe I have more progressive ideals um, and ideas than she did. Uh, but it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she was Catholic. I'm Catholic. I uh, am also pro-choice. She was not. Um, mm. I think uh, our income tax has been um, a good thing for our state. So interesting when we, when we first had the arguments about the income tax in 1990 when Lowell Weicker was the governor. Progressives, quote unquote, liberal left Democrats embraced it as a cause, as did some Republicans who we'd call Main Street. I mean, not my um, business Republicans arguing it was a more stable revenue stream as well as more just as long as the progressive income tax. And I would say for 20 years, it in fact proved to be so. They felt it was fairer than a sales tax was more predictable. And that kept government in pretty flush times for a while, although we weren't then using some of that money to uh, put it debts. But here's, but here's the problem. In the early 80s, after the Mayanus River <clears throat> Bridge collapse, uh, we stopped tolls. Mm-hmm. And we stopped investing in our state's transportation infrastructure, which was a detriment to our economic uh, development. Um, and also, both Republican governors and Democratic governors and legislatures controlled by both parties did not fully fund pension liabilities, both for teachers and for state employees. And so... Here we are. And I want to get back to what we do about that now. But what's mm-hmm. gonna, the point I was going to make of the income tax is some of the same progressive elements of the Democratic Party are now split. They say that it served its purpose for decades. But now that we've made it so progressive and rely so heavily on, let's say, hedge fund and other financial industry taxpayers in Fairfield County, that it's less predictable than it was. So in one year, depending on how someone reports income, we can get hit from 10 taxpayers and all of a sudden have a deficit. And that, uh, so now, and there's a split because there are still progressive Democrats who say, let's still make it more progressive. It's been exaggerated how many people will leave the state. If you look at our neighboring states, they have the same rates of income tax. But then others, including Martin Looney, say, who he had personally made it more, he led the fight to make it more progressive. He says it's no longer the predictable revenue source and we have to look at alternatives, that you have to change with the times, that it, something that served its purpose for 20 years now operates differently because of how the economy and has changed. there's a lot of taxes like that. Another... Um, but where one, do you stand on that? Should we be moving away from reliance income tax or should we just rely on the tax as much but make it more progressive still? You know, I think that at those at higher income levels still pay less than in other states. Uh, the effective rate is still 6.99. Lower, and right? it's been a measure to make it 7.5 for income but over I think a half million, it, a million. We always have to keep looking at what our revenue streams are to see if they still make sense. So I know we're going to talk about tolls later, but I would bring up the gas tax because the legislature looks like it's moving in the direction of electronic tolling, which I support. But if we do that, I think we should lower the gas tax because that tax is extremely regressive and it's generating so much less than it used to. Jonathan Harris, another candidate, made the same point you did on this program. He said that, in fact, we're losing revenue because... Truck, let's say truck drivers know not to fill up in Connecticut when they go state to state. And buy coffee or a yeah. sandwich. Everyone or... keeps bringing up the burrito. Do they really eat so many burritos? Everyone who brings it up says they'll buy a burrito. I don't <laughs> know. I don't know. Um, we could just go with coffee for yeah, now. Yeah, let's go with coffee. Okay, coffee's going to get us there. But the other point is that 
the gas tax um, is generating less because people are driving hybrid and electric cars and more fuel efficient. So it's not a tax for the future. That's right. And so I think we always have to keep looking at what the revenue streams are and what's fair for families in Connecticut. All right. So Susan Beisowitz is on us with us today on Dateline New Haven, your home for community radio at 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhaveninfo.org. Susan is a quote unquote exploring a run, is in fact one of the front runners for the Democratic nomination for governor. So we talk about Ella Grasso, whom you wrote a book about. I thought it was a great senior essay, by the way. Is did you get an A? I did. Yeah, I would have definitely given you an A for that one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> my senior essay at Yale was about um, third parties and how the press covers them. And here you are. Yeah, I, I wanted to do one paper that looked at the science aspect of political science because I was a political science graduate. I didn't believe in the science part. I philosophically believe that people's normative approach to politics can't be quantified. I think I was proved wrong because of the way people in the business have used big data to kind of really narrow down, you know. You know, it's it's remarkable what they can use. And now there are all of these things like Facebook that didn't exist when uh, you and were I you, were, were writing our Were you a political papers. science major? Um, so I studied political science and economics, and then I was a scholar of the house when I was a senior. Oh, how fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. So mm-hmm. the book was terrific. One, one part of the book that stood out was you emphasized Ella Grasso's a response to a major blizzard in a uh, major blizzard were done at a blizzard in 1978. And she went That's to the right. command center. It was the first televised gubernatorial handling of a major storm. And it kind of made the state lover. There were a lot of controversy before that. She was mother Ella, but she also was tough. And she let people see how she was getting the plows out and how she was keeping people safe. Fast forward. Now we now live in climate change era where we uh, Daniel Malloy, in his first four years, Did a lot had of four that. storms that were the magnitude of Ella's once-in-a-generation storm. We are having um, major storm events that shut down the state and imperil lives at at least five times the rate or more that we used to have them. How important is that for a governor? Is Climate there, uh, change is real, and it's causing uh, lots of storms. To it, Dan Malloy. Has it made the governor more of a mayor in terms of being the person who oversees public works and makes sure the streets get cleaned as a central part of the job, unlike in the past? Was Ella the beginning of a new era? I, I think I think she was, although we are not dealing with climate change uh, then in the late 70s at the level that um, Dan Malloy has dealt with over the past uh, eight years. And I think, importantly, he took the utilities to task for the power outages that lasted in Middletown. It was 11 days. I still wow, remember 11 that. Days. Yeah. I remember a week down here. That's a lot. Wow. Um, and so uh, he advocated to get the utilities um, much more focused on um, cutting back the trees and making sure people weren't without power for extended periods of time. Yeah, and I mean, obviously the utilities were caught a little bit because I think you might be thinking mostly of the blizzard of 2013 that had three feet of snow and the whole New England had that and they were sending people from state to state and trying to keep up with it. I did notice there was a big one in 2011 too. Right, yeah. Yeah. So uh, another emphasis, you know, another theme of your book on Ella Grasso was the role of a woman in politics. And tell me if you think there's a fair takeaway. I think that you said in there that a a, a woman governor can be tough and win sympathy points. She was known as, quote, everyone's mother, quote, Ms. Grasso liked to think of herself as a surrogate mother, not only for her staff and colleagues, but for the entire state. She tried to get Stuart McKinney, the congressman, to stop smoking. She played matchmaker for her staff. 
at the same time, she was known as tough. And like she'd been groomed by John Bailey, the Democratic state chairman, legendary um, backroom operator, and that she could be tough when it, the time came. Is that the view you have of yourself? Will you be everyone's mother who, when the doors are closed, you'll make sure the deal <laughs> gets cut and people are scared of you? Well, um, I'll say, first of all, I am a mother. Um, and uh, my kids... Uh, my, my husband and I raised three children and we're very proud of them, Avalena and Tristan. Um, and they are 26, 24 and 22. Thank heaven. Our, our youngest, our son, Tristan just graduated from college this past summer. So I'm so happy to be done with the tuition payments because that was a heavy lift. Um, I do believe that we need a governor who has a collaborative leadership style and not an adversarial leadership style, because we saw with the last budget negotiations that were protracted, the only thing the legislature could agree on, the Democrats and the Republicans, was they wanted to cut the governor out of the budget-making process. Do you have a reputation to be different? Because you're known as a tough campaigner, and as you point out to me in the past, there is a a gender double standard when people talked about you and man who ran. Matter of fact, you... Gave me a pretty good schooling in 98 and after about sex assumptions I had in my own reporting mm-hmm. about a male you ran against who, because he just died and mm-hmm. had been arrested. We don't necessarily have to mention his name, but, mm-hmm. but how about updating? Is there a new lesson for me as a reporter? Was that a sexist question when I asked you whether um, the governor can still be seen as mom? And the reason I'm asking that question, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the Me Too movement and the rise of women in politics and throughout our society now in the last few months rising to positions of power that have long been closed to them. Has that changed the way we discuss women? So like a big theme of your book I sure was she so. was, mo- she was sure seen as Mother so. Ella. That was her nickname. That was the role she played. Is that the wrong question to be asking you in 2018? I think you ought to be asking what kind of leadership do you think that you bring? Because I think that's what the voters want to know. What kind of leadership um, would you bring? You talked about inclusive. So... First, uh, I think we need a governor who has a record of passing legislation that is difficult with bipartisan support. So I'll mention one type of legislation. Um, We changed the voting system in Connecticut. When you were Secretary of State. That's right. And we did it when there was no agreement or no consensus on what the best voting system would be. And in fact, there was a lot of strong sentiment on both sides. And yet, we built a consensus and had bipartisan, near-unanimous support for what we did. Um, So I think we need a leader for our state who has the experience of working with both sides of the aisle in the legislature. So that was right after the 2000 presidential election. Which was divisive. So without downplaying the success of that and the importance of that being mm -hmm. bipartisan, we do live in such a different world. 2018 in Connecticut is very different from this time in 2017. You're right. We're watching that with the Chief Justice nomination now for the state Supreme Court. We are now more like Washington, and we are very evenly divided in the legislature. In fact, if you become governor, you might be the governor, as you're pointing out, maybe, with a Republican legislature. How will you operate differently so that you can succeed where another governor has not succeeded? So I think it's very important 
to have a governor who's going to work in a co- in a collaborative way uh, with the legislature uh, and pass a budget that is on time, that's fair, that's balanced, and that has bipartisan support. Um, when I was Secretary of the State, whenever I got legislation passed, I always would start with Republican legislative support and Democratic legislative support and would get that from both sides of the aisle because it wouldn't happen unless you did. So I think we have to start with that premise. And also, I think it's important, um, as I'm in a potential Democratic primary for governor, that people in our party look to, since you brought up the legislature and the fact that we have an 1818 split in the state Senate and a small margin in the state House, it's really important to look at who is the candidate who can best lead all of the candidates to victory on our side of the aisle. And you mentioned the Me Too movement. What is very inspiring and exciting to me is there are all these new women and young people who are stepping forward to run for office. And a wonderful example from right around here is in Hamden. There are these three candidates who are Democrats that have stepped forward to try to run against George Logan, the state senator, newly. Oh, they're against each other, all three that women? Um, they're not all women. It's Sean Grace, it's George Cabrera, and oh. it's Valerie Horsley. And they are all, they're all great candidates. Three-way and, primary? Yep. And they, are, and they are vying to go up against the Republican George Logan. And so uh, as someone who has watched elections where often you have no candidates to run against incumbents, this election cycle is very exciting. And I would argue what you just mentioned in, in Hamden, I think you were fusing two movements. One is, they call it the resistance, and there's no better example of that mm-hmm. than Hamden, where there's a group movement. there, that, and they're generating yep. candidates, and that's about the Trump election. Yes. As is in part the Me Too movement, but not only about the Trump election, reactions mm-hmm. to Trump and his group's um, sexual harassment yes. history, but it started with Harvey Weinstein, it's, and it's yes. gone into media, it's gone into, what is it going to mean, as someone who has always looked at the role of women in politics for that issue, what does it mean to run as a woman in 2018? Is it going to help you, hurt you more, and what's the message? I just look at who, where did Democrats win in the municipal elections last year? Because, as you point out, we had progressive groups popping up all over the state. So there were 21 towns that went from red to blue. My favorite example is Willington, although the same thing happened. I don't even know where Willington is. It's, oh, it's right on the border of Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts. Yes, it's next to Ashford. Um, I don't know where Ashford is. I've been here 40 years. Okay. There had been um, Republican control and a group of people, a group of 15 people, 13 of them women, said, we're Democrats. We're tired of Republican control. We're going to put forward a ticket and we're going to go knock on doors, make phone calls. And... 13 of the 15 won. Almost all of those uh, were women. And Erica Wachensky is now leading the town of Willington. Heretofore, it had been 
uh, a Republican town. And you know where Ashford and Wellington, places like there are because you've run three statewide, four state, five statewide the, races. They're even beautiful, the town beautiful towns. They're beautiful towns. And you're listening to Susan Bicewitz, who's a exploratory, quote unquote, candidate for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination here on Dateline New Haven, your home for community radio, 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Alma Nartartes, and I'm very sorry if I mispronounced your name, post on Facebook. Ask her any question. It's obvious that she deeply understands the challenges of Connecticut. You only get this knowledge from experience as Secretary of State for three terms. The only candidate to win a statewide election. She has the background to lead our state. Okay, so your people are listening and posting. Alma, thank you for listening, and thanks and for- And Alma, uh, you should know that Alma is on the city council in New London Okay, and working hard. So you, you've been in the trenches. You've known like Connecticut at the town level. Who gets involved in politics? Who's the person mm-hmm. to go talk to? And that's it's what you're trying to. State what you're trying to build on, running for governor now. And so you've been working at this a long time, Susan. You were set. You were a state representative, correct? Mm-hmm. And you kind of focused a lot on on elections type issues, if I remember correctly, before you were secretary of the state. We well, when I uh, got elected to the state house, um, Tom Ritter, when he made me chair, state house speaker. That's right, the speaker at the time, Tom Ritter asked me if I would bring out a bill to allow direct primary in Connecticut. And I was quite passionate about that because I had just had to go through a primary, a Democratic primary, where I was not the endorsed candidate. And does that mean you could petition your way on? Uh, Yes. Uh, And uh, we worked at that. um, And eventually uh, we got it, not through the legislature's passage, but through court order, which was interesting. interesting. And the uh, court case uh, actually required that the legislature set up a program of uh, direct primary. So some of my colleagues in either the Democratic side or the Republican side may choose not to go to their party's convention, but to go collect signatures in order to get on the ballot. We have a very... A tough system to get on the ballot prior to uh, prior to that law being passed, and it's still a heavy lift to go get fifteen thousand signatures to get on the ballot um, is a very difficult threshold to reach. And in fact, in most states, you just need a couple of signatures. Because so you're a state representative, and then you be the secretary of the state, which mm-hmm. is the state's top elections official as well as business uh, database person. Yep. And uh, you were that for 12 years, 1998. I mean, you were elected 1999 to 2011. 2011. Mm-hmm. Then you had two setbacks. In 20, you, you sought to run for governor. And then when you, you switched... I had an exploratory committee. And then and you switched to attorney decided general. Decided to... Uh, run for attorney general and then you didn't get either of those offices and um and it was a competitive field and in Mm -hmm. 2012 you sought the democratic nomination for u.s senator against chris murphy Mm -hmm. pretty much every politician who has succeeded in public life has had some losses whether it's the mayor in new haven john DeStefano, whether it's bill clinton whether it's barack obama whether the ones who are successful the ones who learn from those losses they don't wallow in it they get back up the next day and they say what did i what did i learn from that experience what did you learn? Because it's embarrassing. You put yourself out there when you run for public office, and a lot of people are embarrassed when they lose. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying you should be. I didn't know in the sense that you were embarrassed. But for a lot of people, you know, I put myself out there and somebody else beat me. What did you learn from those experiences? You know, you learn a lot. Uh, and it's interesting because I have spent the past seven or eight years helping 
more than 80 Connecticut companies uh, create thousands of good paying jobs, which is a great thing to get up in the morning and do every day. And I didn't necessarily expect to be looking at running for governor, but here's how it happened. I have always been uh, in touch with Democratic leaders, and I've been helping um, people like um, Josh Elliott, who ran for state representative, get elected. I've been helping uh, mayors like Tony Harp get elected um, because I'm passionate about getting good people in elective office. Um, but also, um, I think it, as someone who was looking at possibly running for the state Senate, because we got a Republican state senator in Middletown and Meriden uh, in Len Susio, um, and I, people asked me to take a look at doing that. And so I spent April to um, October knocking on 10,000 doors. And, people and the only exploratory state Senate candidate who went to something like 50 town committees in other cities. Because um, you're also exploring well, for governor. No, so I didn't start exploring. Um, uh, That's not a criticism. For, I was no, just no, noticing no. that at I, the time and thinking, I think she's going for governor. Well, I didn't start going to town committees until the beginning of January okay. because I had been out almost all of 2017 speaking to people about uh, that state Senate district. And hundreds of people said when I knocked on their door and I said, hi, I'm Susan. And they'd say, oh, are you running for governor? And I'd say, actually, I'm looking to run for the state Senate against Len Susio. And they'd say, well, we'll vote for you for that. But, you know, the state's in a big mess. We think you should run for governor because we think you can help. Can I still ask you what you learned from when mm-hmm. you um, when you didn't succeed in your quest for governor and attorney general before? How did that make you a stronger candidate in 2018? Um, I think anytime you're not successful you learn from your uh mistakes uh i learned hey it's difficult to run for something if the whole party is against you right that's what happened um in the united states uh senate primary that i had um all the congress people endorsed uh, chris murphy but uh now i think we have a lot of political support for uh, this exploratory so did you learn you need effort to, for governor. You need more support from party leaders? Is that what you took from that? You or know, that you have I to just, build a I way just think party there are leaders? different leaders who are good at a particular time, okay? For whatever reason, the Democratic Party thought Chris Murphy was the right person. <laughs> and now, it wasn't just the voters in central Connecticut who said, Susan, you should look at this. Um leaders within the Democratic Party asked me to take a look when people like Kevin Lembo, So you're Nancy saying one thing Wyman, you learned is don't run for it if, if leaders in the party aren't with you? Because that doesn't sound like a Susan Bicewitz approach You know what, to me. look, I, I have had two primaries, uh, one for state representative, one for secretary of the state, where I was not the endorsed candidate. Right. And I won. That's why it doesn't sound to me like the real lesson is wait to see if party people endorse you. Uh, I didn't say that was the lesson. I just said sometimes the uh, timing isn't right. Timing isn't right. But did you take any? I I won't keep bugging this. This is more time. I don't mean to put you on the couch, but I'm still not hearing a lesson. I'm still maybe there isn't one. Maybe it's not a neat answer. So you lose sometimes, you win sometimes. You know, I don't know that I could say 
mm -hmm. uh, what the answer is. And I think the simple answer was that uh, the party uh, preferred Chris Murphy, and that's okay. Um, I spent the past eight years helping Democrats win and helping thousands, uh, helping businesses create thousands of jobs in Connecticut. So when I talk to delegates to the convention, um, the two camps, the people who said they're either with you or not with you, mm -hmm. I'm hearing about people who are with you. They say, we're going to go with Susan because she knows how to win. She fights hard. She wants to win. She got a progressive record and people know her statewide. People aren't with you. I see some people are still bitter or got negative campaigns. You ran against your opponents in the past. The or they say are never negative. And, and, and that also. How you vote on a bill isn't a negative thing. It's just. And it's also, just the truth. And that, and that um, the other thing is that, well, she lost two races 2010, 2012. We need new people in. So those are the two camps of what I hear from people at well, this juncture, which I'm sure you say, hear too. Yeah. All I can say is that our polling shows I'm the only Democrat that can beat Mr. Boughton and Mr. Herbst, Tim Herbst in and a Mark general Boughton. election. Um, and our Democratic primary polling shows that I am the strongest Democrat and more than 25 points ahead of Ned Lamont wow. and the mayor of Hartford. Well, I will say that whether they're for or against you, you are known as the hardest worker in terms of the person I grew up who on a potato farm, so yeah. I learned from my dad uh, <laughs> a strong work ethic, and I also learned that from my mom, who was the first tenured law professor at the University of Connecticut, and she was huh. someone who was in a field dominated by men yet she was quite successful okay at it. you ready for lightning round sure this is not the prices right you're not going to win a car okay i'm not going to oh, ask darn. you trivia from uh trivia pursuits okay i ask you about issues we already did tolls your fur highway tolls but with a company with the gas tank gas yes. tax going down with a reduction in the gas tax. public financing preserve the public financing oh, system bi big time supporter helped write the law we have what about the regulatory agencies for that that Dumerloy has has consolidated with uh, state elections enforcement. They're stronger when they're separate. Okay, would you unseparate them? Uh, assuming we had the resources. I ah, like that's to. the big assuming. The reason he he claimed the reason he was combining them was because we didn't have the resources. Right now, is I'm it, skeptical. You're skeptical. Okay, but are you skeptical? We'll have the resources. Uh, I would like to have them separate. Okay. Um, Bump stocks and ghost gun ban that William Tong Support. is promoting. Supporting single payer health insurance. Love it. You'll move love us it. in the right direction. There are two camps in that. One camp says let's just go do it. Another camp says I'm 100 percent for it, but it has to be federal, and we just have to move toward expanding public. I am for any incremental, medium, or large initiative that gets us closer. So, so Vermont tried it. They found one state couldn't do it. I wondered whether there could be a blue state compact. Whether there can be a grand compromise with red states that don't want as many as people on Medicaid, don't want single payer. Would it be enough? Because you need scale. Would it be enough for if there, let's say, there are 23 state houses run by uh, or governor's offices running by Democrats to have them join together in a single payer system? That's a very interesting and creative idea. And why not? And if the federal government, either Congress or the president, managed to do away with the Affordable Care Act, I would keep Healthcare Access Connecticut, our program uh, that's you know similar to what Massachusetts has had for years. Um, and I think that efforts uh, being made by uh, John Larson and Joe Courtney to reduce the age when you can buy into Medicare, I think that's great. Chris Murphy. Right, that's is, Hillary Clinton's idea, Medicare at 50. 
I think we should have Medicare from so like birth to death. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, right? I mean, and I also like the idea of Chris Murphy's bill. I haven't seen it yet, but he's working on a bill to move us to single payer over a period of years. So I would be, as governor, an advocate of any way to get us to that because, bottom line, it's economic. Um, I believe we're all entitled to quality health care, but it's economic because we're, our American companies and Connecticut companies are competing against companies from the UK, France, Germany, um, and they're at a competitive disadvantage because those countries uh, don't have to be. Uh, I never understood why American business, starting the Truman administration, fought versions of universal health care single payer when it made them so uncompetitive with the high cost. Right. I know running a business that 22% last year premium on the cost went up for health insurance just in yep. one year. And municipalities are struggling with that right now, and mm -hmm. so is the state. Okay, we've got to yep. remind me. Let's move on then. Sanctuary state uh, detainers, there's um, there's a bill to renew Connecticut's policy of not cooperating with um, the Immigration and Custom Enforcement's request to detain people who have been locked up for nonviolent crimes and that they didn't necessarily commit. Mm -hmm. Would you continue the policy, even though Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, said he'll yes. then take money away from us? Yes, let the federal government do their own enforcement. Yep. Okay, uh, legalizing recreational use of marijuana. Support. Okay. Uh, because one of the reasons is in states like Colorado where they have it, there are fewer deaths from opioid addiction and the public health uh, reason is enough in and of itself, but also it would produce about 50 million in revenue for the state. And, we need and advocates of your position and my position say that Colorado has also proved that it gets rid of an injustice issue about who gets arrested. And, um, and the other side says there have been more car accidents that just as with the opioid deaths that are used on our side, it's not conclusive. So you can't prove those opioid deaths are because of marijuana being legalized. And on the other side, there have been more car accidents. You can't prove that that's because of marijuana use. And I think it's, both it, sides could kind of right, use and that. also uh, the other reason that I support legalization is all the states around us are moving in that direction. So um, we might as well uh, do what they're doing. Uh, the carried interest loophole—that's a federal Close it. loophole. Excuse me. Close it. Well, you can't. You can't do federal law but the idea the proposal has been that we then close get, it with a state law and get neighboring states to be part of it yes okay um national popular vote join a compact i've already signed on to that and have been supportive <laughs> yeah okay you got the checklist basically with the bernie faction of the party oh okay good okay <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah and then um how about how would you respond to the state education lawsuit that ultimately failed at the state supreme court but led a superior court judge thomas malkisher whose name i always mispronounced Kousher, yep to uh was it malkisher mccausher Kousher. His 254-page ruling was really a smoker about the injustice of the way state funds its schools. And I think he was really ticked off reading his decision about when at the last minute the legislature moved money from Bridgeport to Westport, from poor cities to wealthy towns. Uh, what would, how would you respond to that? It's a complicated issue. Uh, it is, and um, you see an equally strong reaction um, from mayors like Aaron Stewart, Tony Harp and Joe Gannum to Hartford getting 40 million in the budget and then another 550 million for debt reduction. So what you're really getting at is we cannot have a state uh, financing system that pits small towns versus big cities. Uh, we need 
thriving cities and we need to reduce the achievement gap. Um, you know, here we are, one of the wealthiest states in the country. At the same time, Bridgeport and Hartford are two of the poorest cities per so, capita. So how do you do it? How do you close that achievement gap? So you need universal uh, pre-K education. Uh, I think that's probably uh, the best way to do it. Because people's brains are being developed. And you start most as early as age. you can um, with those uh, young children so they don't get behind. Uh, because, you know, if you look at our prison population, you see that uh, many of the folks there have um, an educational achievement gap. They're, they didn't finish high school. They had difficulty uh, with academics when they're in school. You're listening to Susan Bysowitz, who's a quote-unquote exploratory candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor here on Dateline New Haven and WNHH 103.5 live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. So why do you want this job? I mean, the budget seems like a mess. You'd be inheriting a, a, pen, a debt problem that two parties created over over twenty years. Why would you? And every the political environment is deteriorated. Why would you want this job? So I want my two girls, who are our daughters, uh, both work in New York City, and I would love to make our state a place where they'll say, "Hey, mom, I want to come back and." To Connecticut and live in New Haven, uh, and I found this really great paying job. By the way, it is great to live in New Haven. I love New Haven. I was left. born in New Haven. I lived you here when I was Haven? going to school. I was at the Yale New Haven Hospital. All right. Yep. All right. And so, how would, and we we talked earlier, and I, I cut you off earlier in the show, mm -hmm. but I did want to talk about it. How do you deal with our pension obligation that has gotten so huge, and how do you deal with um with the budget, the inherent budget so, deficit so, right now? Uh, so. Most importantly, we're getting to the point where we can't just tax our way out or cut our way out. We have to start growing our economy. And before we even go to how do you fix the pension or how do you fix the budget issues, we have to talk about what we need to do to get our economy moving. And this is what I've been living for the past seven years as I've been helping my clients. So you've been who, practicing law, by the way. I have. I'm a business it. lawyer, and I have helped more than... 80 companies, homegrown to Connecticut, get financing so they can expand and grow thousands of jobs, which is a very, very And was that building on expertise thing. you had from having overseen the uh, Concord? So the I was, State, yes, the yes. Um, so I was a business lawyer before I was ever in public service. Um, and that's what I did. Uh, and as Secretary of the State, I focused a lot on helping small businesses. So we had a small business unit in the Secretary of the State's office where we would help women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, um, minority-owned businesses succeed and thrive. So it was both private and public sector experience um, that I brought to help my clients. And so through them, I've lived what are the issues with our economy. So for instance, you can't have a budget that um, is not done on time because companies don't want to come to a state that doesn't have a predictable budget and whose government isn't well run. We need to invest in infrastructure uh, because it's a catch-all phrase. You talk about roads. You're talking about roads, uh, mass transit, bridges, schools, dams, schools, um, broadband, internet, um, ports, rail, public transportation. We've left billions off the table because we haven't had tolls since the mid 
early to mid 80s. And that's why we're behind. We're 41 in terms of infrastructure, according to U.S. And where do we get the money for building that infrastructure? Well, we get it from the special transportation fund, which is now bankrupt, but voters should pass the lockbox initiative so that DMV fees, um, fees from electronic tolling uh, will go into that lockbox and it can only then be used to uh, support transportation infrastructure. And that will create thousands of good paying construction jobs, union jobs, and it will also be a huge boost to the economy because every dollar you put into so is there nothing we can do with the pension fund itself? Because Governor Lloyd talks about how two, I think it's two-thirds of the um, cost of our inherited bench problems are people who are retired in quite a long time. You can't really change those rules. Is there anything we can do with the pensions themselves? Republicans say you can um, force by legislative fee out the results of collective bargaining. What, what, what's uh... So um, I don't believe that you can um, willy-nilly change the contracts, okay, because... Governor Rowland did that, and then there was a federal lawsuit. The state lost. So we got to honor the contracts, and then the question is, how do you pay for it? So there are two tiers um, of retirement. Right, older retirees. Right. And, and so the tier one, those are the people who have the richest benefits. But by 2027, so less than 10 years from now, there will be many fewer people in that pool. And the tier two people, um, the problem with, with that tier is Governor Rowland put a poison pill in there so that you have like a huge balloon payment that's coming up. And so we have to smooth Not those just payments Governor Rowland, but your friend Tom Ritter, the Democratic speaker. I mean, that was a bipartisan poison yes, pill. Yes, and that's why when we first brought this up, I said both... Democratic governors and yeah. Republican so governors. So what do you do are, about that? What do you do about tier two? So you stretch the payments out uh, over a longer period of time. Uh, and, you know, look, I'm a taxpayer. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Democrat. I'm somebody who very strongly believes in the right to organize. But I'm a taxpayer, and there's some abuses that you have to get rid of. For instance, um, the way of looking at retirements where you only look at the last three years. And then they load it, up the, they load up the overtime. Right. The overtime, you got to put a cap on the overtime and say, we're going to look at your entire career. How can you change that? If that's already been bargained. Govern. Future. Contracts. So, so you do that. And the CBAC agreement actually, that's what the coalition already state started to look at, right? Because there are one, there's already $1.5 billion in cuts that, Retirees and state employees already accepted, and people. So, is your general answer is it fair to say that while looking at some of those issues, the answer is to grow the economy more, to produce more revenue, to pay those obligations, in addition to stretching out the tier two, the tier one payment. Yes, and and also get rid of abuse. Okay, can we talk a tiny bit about baseball? So, you're going to have to um, emerge from a pack of half dozen serious candidates, or four to six. How? The two benchmarks um, we were talking before mm -hmm. on the air are April 10th is the next filing period for campaign finance. Mm -hmm. And tell me if I remember this right. It takes $250,000 in contributions that count. Um, Five right? to $100 contributions, and right? 75% of them from in-state, right? Yep. Someone who can get that can qualify for public financing and therefore run a credible campaign. 
Mm-hmm. So you're saying the April 10th um, reports will show who's getting close on that. Right, because um, you need to be done right around the time of the convention, which for the Democrats is May 18th, an, 17th. May 19th. Oh, 19th. And so there are two benchmarks. One is, can you raise the $250,000 in the five dollars contributions? And the other benchmark is, can you get, for the Democrats, 300 delegates at the state convention. So out of uh, how many? Out of 1,200 or more, 1,400 mm-hmm. maybe. 1,500. Okay. 15% is the 30, okay. is the 300 delegates, yeah. So um, how, how, do you, how do you think you're doing on both fronts? So I think that um, we are making some good progress. We had $105,000 in small contributions that we raised just in the months of November and December of last year. And um, I think we're on track to raise more than that for uh, this coming quarter. So you're not going to report 250 on April 10th? Well, actually, um, we may we may raise more than 250000 how much it, How much of it will be qualifying? My poor treasurer is sitting at the computer, you know, right. inputting and, and trying to figure that to raise out. And you never expectations you're supposed to set a realistic goal and then say wow we beat it yeah well so so i could say that at the end of the quarter we will do better than we did in the last in in our last reporting period and it'll show that we're on our way to and two of your opponents um ned lamont who's a self-financed and joe gannon who is not allowed to participate in public finance which i thought was one of the most interesting court decisions basically said because you were convicted of being a corrupt politician we're not going to allow you to run as a clean politician. In the no, future. well, I, I helped write the campaign finance law, and it says very clearly that if you're convicted of public corruption, you are not qualified. You so cannot the argument receive- being that you needed public support for a finance system that doesn't finance crooks. But could another way look at it say that that goes against the idea of incentives to run clean and not be bound by a system where if you're a mayor, you basically shake down contractors? Well, I suppose, uh, but the interesting thing is the legislature um, wrote the law to address the corruption uh, that John Rowland was convicted of to address Joe Gannam's public corruption, Ernie Newton's, and the like. Bridgeport's so, an amazing place. <laughs> so only in Bridgeport. So is in Bicewitz. Isn't that a blog? Thank you so much for, oh yeah, I love that site. Yeah, And I love that it's run by someone who testified against Joe Gannam in a corruption trial, went to jail, and is now covering him again. Indeed, I only love, in Bridgeport. I love Bridgeport. Susan Bysowitz, what a pleasure to have you here Thank on Dateline New Haven me. and WNHH. And I'm so glad you're back in the race because then I get to interview you again. Thank you. I always I'll, learn love something. love to come back. I always learn something when I talk to you. Thanks everybody for listening today at Dateline New Haven. Uh, we'll be replaying this a bunch of times. You can weigh in. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.